when you tell someone to get rid of all of their favorite foods, you know, what's the, what's the immediate response, right? Like that sounds awful, <laughs> sounds restrictive and, and, um, and miserable. And it, and it sounds like just another diet, right? Mm. I mean, that's kind of my story is and I've been through diet after diet after diet and they're all short lived and they're all like, okay, I have to muscle my way through for this three weeks or six weeks or three months or whatever it is. And then I will find the results that I want and then I can go back to my regular life. Mm. And we all know, obviously that doesn't, that doesn't work. And so that's what was falling flat for me. Welcome back to another episode of Cultivating Change, everyone. I'm your host, Alex Corey. Thank you so much for spending some of your precious time with me. Today's guest is Jennifer Ostman. Jennifer is the founder and head coach at Sagewell Holistic Health. She is a functional nutritional therapist and board certified health coach and has had a very interesting health journey. Uh, she named her business Sagewell because the sage is wise through reflection and experience, and that embodies her approach to health, fully empowering people and giving them their autonomy back. Whereas through traditional nutritional therapy, sometimes there are protocols and a one size fits all method. And she's found much greater appreciation with the collaboration model and truly giving people their freedom of decision back, going to a lot of different eating styles. In this, I learned a lot about myself in talking with her, um, go over a lot of good, uh, points about food systems, hydration, how to do and test for autoimmune protocol, uh, nervous system states, and general inflammation in the body. So if you've been having trouble trying to figure out what the baseline of your body is and how to cut through the noise, you're really going to enjoy this one. Do you want to walk us through your introduction to health, wherever you'd like to start, and your um, functional nutrition pathway, so to speak? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I obtained my uh, SNTP certification as a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, which is a mouthful, um, from the NPA, the Nutritional Therapy Association, in 2017. Um, I... I've, I've grown up with um, a health-minded family, so I didn't come into this pathway uh, or this industry with a, a wonderfully dr dramatic story, <laughs> and um, it, didn't, it, it didn't come to me because of uh, a self-healing um, uh, story or anything like that. Um, you know, my mom was always health-minded. She introduced me to movement and yoga and healthy eating uh, early on, and so um, this is kind of a, a pretty natural path for me. So I, I started looking for how I could make it a career um, and found the NTA. Uh, started that in 2017, and I actually graduated uh, about six weeks before my, my daughter was born. So um, it was two things, two new things in my life at the same time, which is a really wonderful new beginning for me. Um, and so I had my own practice for about five years. And um, I'm sorry, about three years. And I was having a blast with that. I was a lot of fun. I learned so much at the NTA. I, um, I was seeing clients. I was seeing one-on-one -on -one clients. I was seeing group coaching clients. And one thing I noticed that was a pattern was that I was able to kind of, I was able to tell people what to do, 
right? That's the foundational education that the NTA gave me, which I'm so grateful for because I, I learned foundational nutritional uh, concepts. And so I gave people protocols, right? I said, here's what to eat. Here's what not to eat. Here's what you should drink. And here's what not to drink. And here's all the things that you should do. And here's your protocol. Go off and do it, right? Yep. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that doesn't always work. It's, um, it's fascinating how we feel so confident as new practitioners mm -hmm. to say, I know all the answers. I have all the answers for you. Here you go. And now just do it. And I saw some results. You know, my clients saw some results. And uh, I was really frustrated with how um, how little I felt like I was helping them. Uh, and it wasn't as um, successful as I wanted it to be. So uh, in a roundabout way, I found, you know, I found a, I found a, a job, a full-time job in this industry that led me to this health coaching path and learning more about behavior change and helping people with that self-autonomy, that client-centered coaching. And that changed everything for me. Everything changed after I completed that course and got that certification because I realized that I am not the expert, right? I may have the information. I may have the training in, in nutrition um, and wellness and health, but I don't have the answers. I don't have um, the expertise, right, of each person because each person is their own, is the expert of their own bodies. And so what I love so much about this this um, path that I that I took that I kind of rerouted myself on was that um, I was able to empower people to make their own changes in their health. And that just changed everything for me. So now what I do is I focus on, I am so grateful that I have the foundational knowledge that I do. However, my practice now is so focused on empowering those clients to make their own changes because, um, you know, if there's one thing I've learned, we won't make changes because someone tells us to, right? <laughs> That's definitely not going to happen. We're not going to be motivated to make our own changes because it worked for somebody else or because somebody says we should. Ultimately, long-lasting change has to come from has to come with it from within. It's long. It's a those in those internal motivations that really make a difference and move the needle for people. So that's really how my my path in a nutshell has kind of changed recently, um, and I'm really excited about it. That was beautiful. And uh, your business is Sagewell Holistic Health. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, Sagewell Holistic. Thank you. And I love the story or the brief um, synopsis of how you came up with Sagewell. Could you share that with us again? It took me a little while of trying to kind of hone in on what really embodied my message. And I landed on the definition of sage, which means wise through experience and self-knowledge, right? So um, it is really about getting to know yourself. You are a sage because you know yourself well enough to know what is best for yourself. So why through experience and knowledge? That is, that is really what embodies my coaching approach is that you are wise. You are the, the one that knows the most about yourself and the most about your body and the most about your goals. Um, and that's really kind of what I wanted to make sure I got across to my clients. Yeah. And we'll come back to that. Um, I'll pull a lot out of that. I'm curious because I don't think we chatted about this last time we spoke. What was the sort of the bread and butter of the, I don't want to say conventional, but I think of 
um, a classical nutrition protocol is more conventional. What was, did you have any success with people when you gave a protocol, can you give a sample protocol or um, it was probably hyper individualized, I'm guessing, but um, what types of frameworks were you using and were you seeing compliance and or any lasting results with what you're doing? And then were there some things that were just falling flat consistently? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, I, I work with, um, I work with a lot of people with autoimmune disease mm -hmm. and the first thing that we do is remove inflammatory foods. And that's logical, right? It makes a lot of sense. Remove inflammatory foods because those are the foods that are probably hindering progress. Um, and so that in, that elimination first approach is powerful and I've seen it work. Um, but I will say that I have shifted my mindset around that a bit because um, elimination first really kind of also um, gives you this, deprivation mindset too and like sends you into this spiral of fear you know it's mm -hmm. like oh i can't have any of these foods so so the protocol that i would recommend first would be get rid of this this this, and this right eliminate sugar eliminate gluten eliminate dairy eliminate seed oils these are all the things that are most likely inflammatory to most people mm -hmm. they're the, the most probable offenders so let's get rid of those and see how you do and when you tell someone to get rid of all of their favorite foods, you know, what's the, what's the immediate response, right? Like that sounds awful, <laughs> sounds restrictive and, and, um, and miserable. And it, and it sounds like just another diet, right? Mm. I mean, that's kind of my story is that I've been through diet after diet after diet and they're all short lived and they're all like, okay, I have to muscle my way through for this three weeks or six weeks or three months or whatever it is. And then I will, find the results that I want and then I can go back to my regular life. Mm. And we all know, obviously that doesn't, that doesn't work. And so that's what was falling flat for me was telling people what to remove, what, what foods to remove. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not now saying that the opposite is true, but for me now it feels so much more empowering to say what in nutrient dense foods can you bring in first, right? Where, where can we focus on abundance and where can we mm. focus on, bringing more in and and then maybe when you're comfortable we'll talk about foods that might need to be evaluated because they might be hindering your progress right so um i have found that kind of being less dogmatic mm -hmm. <laughs> which is probably my number one change in my own mindset is not not being dogmatic having that flexibility and again, going back to that kind of client-centered coaching where you say, what do you feel is manageable? What, these are the things that I recommend. Here is, here is a large menu of recommendations that I have. Where do you want to start? What sounds, what sounds most manageable, manageable to you? What do you find, if someone asks you, they're like, okay, I'm game, just to start to see some immediate effects in energy or in sleep quality or in mood or what are your five, five nutrient dense foods that you just throw at people? Not necessarily clients, just in talking to people. What are your five favorites? Oh, I like that. Well, water is the first. Yeah. Good call. Uh, water is basic, right? <laughs> we know that. Um, the other one that I bring in is leafy greens. I think mm. that none of us are getting enough leafy greens and I mm. think they're incredibly powerful. So that is also a pretty easy one to, 
throw into smoothies. You know, everybody loves smoothies. That seems to be a pretty uh, standard, like, oh, I can have a smoothie. Okay. <laughs> Add some more leafy greens to your smoothie. Um, and then bone broth is one of my number one nutrient-dense recommendations. I feel like it's such a power food. Uh, and then right along the same lines of that is organ meats. And I know organ meats are uh, polarizing, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so for me, I say, I say organ meats, um, I take them in a form of supplement. So I guess it kind of co- crosses into the supplement world, but I don't yeah. consider organ desiccated meats. organ capsules. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I love those. I don't consider that a supplement because I consider it just powdered real food that happens to be in a capsule. Kind of like athletic greens, so to speak. Yeah. On the green side. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just a you know, we live in a modern day world, so we definitely need to have some con- easy convenient ways to get some of these nutrients um uh you know a, a, a lesser a lesser known one that i also recommend is tea you know the hmm. antioxidants in tea but like any type of tea green tea black tea uh white tea and then i really like herbal teas at the end of the day that's a really good way to get some some antioxidants in there too perfect yeah uh that's a great list actually and then yeah, those don't sound a whole lot like supplements. Those are those are like staples. What do you like any since we're on this subject and then and then we'll move on. Any favorite like one or two supplements that you actually have felt or think move the needle for someone? Like we always think about optimization when it comes to supplements, but mm-hmm. do you like any that you think actually make a sweeping difference in mm-hmm. bare nutrition? Um, hmm. I would go first to, again, organ meats, yeah. which I guess kind of cross that barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other one would be magnesium. Yeah, um, totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that could be obtained in different forms too, for different reasons. You know, I think magnesium is so important and we, our modern day life depletes it so quickly that, uh, you know, we know, but, uh, all the things, right? Sugar, stress, alcohol, mm-hmm. all the things that deplete magnesium. And so um, you can get it in different, you know, taking it, taking it orally in different mm-hmm. forms or um, I'm a big fan of Epsom salt baths. Yeah. That's a great way to get your, your magnesium in a nice relaxing way. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I, I do. I, um, do you know Myoscience, Mike Mutzel, High Intensity Health Company? I don't. He has a little, it's kind of like uh, Elemental, LMNT, Rob Wolf's little electrolyte yeah. packet. He has ones called Myoscience Sticks, um, and I've used them both. But the yeah. Sticks one is uh, chelated magnesium with creatine, which is interesting. Okay. So it's more of a like, performance blend. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, the data behind creatine, especially for, I mean, most people will think of that for bodybuilding, but the data that's like a lot, it's like 20 years of data. And now there's more studies being done for women specifically, um, just on, on hormonal health and things. That's pretty interesting stuff. So yeah, magnesium is, it's like vitamin D it's used in 250 plus biochemical reactions used up just to make energy, like just to get ATP out, you use magnesium. It's so critical. And the reason I started focusing on that above everything else, um, elementally was it's just not in the soil. Like right. my other, one of my passion projects is farming. Um, been a farmer for 10 years and 
it's difficult to add it back in. Like it is one of the expensive okay. ones. Yeah. If it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally with, with a whole lot of things. Sometimes you have to do Epsom salts literally and just put them in the, yeah. it's very strange. And it, it gets depleted so quickly uh, because it okay. is needed. And some plants hold on to it a little too much, like spinach okay. holds on to it pretty well. So even if it's on the list, like there's just a lot of some anti-nutrients attached to it. So it's hard to do too much magnesium, okay. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and your body will tell you, right? I mean, right. if you're getting too much magnesium, you'll know pretty quickly. Sometimes we use that, right? That if you're suffering from constipation, that's a pretty, um, right. that's pretty good right. <laughs> Yeah, I'll let you know. Solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's perfect. So magnesium. And then what other ones do you like just adding to food? What are some easy sort of on the top, um, either spices or sort of optimization ones you just like putting in in food that you feel of an effect with? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of maximizing nutrient density in any way. You know, again, mm -hmm. it kind of goes back to um, we focus, especially us former dieters right yeah. any of us that have been dieting for decades it's really hard to get out of the mindset of what do i need to take away what do i need to get out of, like to take away from this meal and how can i minimize this meal how can i how can i shrink my portions mm. how can i eat less yeah. how can i make sure and you know of course i know this is i know that we're way past this but obviously it's still sometimes hard uh to to embrace all the fat that we eat these days right yeah. and so it can be minimize 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 and so changing your mindset around that and and figuring out how to maximize and optimize and bring in more and more and more can be tough um right. so at any at any chance i have to to maximize nutrient density with anything and that's kind of you know i don't necessarily even want to focus too much on try this yep. because this will maximize this and this will maximize this. It's almost like what variety can you get, right? So for example, I think one of my favorite things to do is so simple is, is when I make tacos, right? I have ground beef and I make taco meat. I have a six-year-old, so this is common, right? We have tacos. It's just to shred up um, zucchini really small mm. and strain it, strain all the water out and then mix it in with taco meat because you can't taste it. You can't see it. And then you've got a whole zucchini in there, right? So it's just an easy way to maximize or to increase nutrient density without changing your whole approach and without having to feel like you have to be on this diet plan. You can eat all your foods. You can have foods that you actually enjoy. And then just, just what can you put, what else do you put in there, right? What else can you add in? Salads are a great way to do that too. How, what variety of foods? And it can, be, it can be vegetables and meats and olives and nuts and seeds and even dairy that will bring in their own nutrient profiles into your meal. Mm. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a fun way, I think a fun way to kind of just to start to, to sneak in more variety. I just recently started learning to love mushrooms and getting more into functional mushrooms. Yep. And it took me until I became an adult to like mushrooms. But again, that's another thing I've been, um, really loving the grocery store that I have a central market mm. nearby that has just a massive array of mushrooms mm. and you can get all different types. And I'm like, all right, we're going to grab one. We're going to see how we cook it. We're going to try it. And then if we hate it, well, again, we'll dice it up really small and we'll toss it into something that has that masks the flavor and you still get that nutrient density in there. Is it a taste or a texture thing with <laughs> mushrooms for you? It's definitely a texture thing. Texture. Okay. The sponginess <laughs> kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I think it's because I grew up with just 
my only exposure was like button mushrooms. Buttons, right? yeah, right. Yeah, and they're so boring. Soggy button and mushrooms. Yeah. Soggy button mushrooms. So <laughs> I finally started embracing like I love shiitake mushrooms and I've tested lion's mane and fruit mm-hmm. oyster and all of these different now they're they're fun and they're they're in a creative way to explore cooking. Yes. Yeah. And they change and they add very differently. Like they, it's kind of like if you put them in a soup, they'll soak up like potatoes mm-hmm. almost. They soak up and they get better after a day of sitting because they like take on the flavor, anything mm-hmm. around them. Yeah. It's a great way to do um, adaptogenic compounds, increase neuroplasticity. Like the, the medicinal effects are pretty, mm-hmm. pretty intense over the long term. So yeah, another good one to sneak in. Yeah. Um, I would like to, so you mentioned restriction and was that an earlier part of your life that came with the, the idea of restriction behind eating or where did that develop? And, um, I guess if you want to go into diet culture in general and your way out of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it must have, and I can't tell you when that started, but, um, as long as I can remember, I have been, mm-hmm. uh, unhappy with my body and um, not very confident Um, and this is not just me of course you know I I, my mom tells me I helped her finally break out of her diet cycle and you know after I became an NTP and worked with her Um, so generationally Mm -hmm. you know we have we, we got we I grew up with body image issues and so I dieted starting probably in early high school and did until honestly until just a few years ago just after I became an NCP and really got dug into this and finally figured myself out a little bit better um just on and off diet on and off diet my whole life um and so I always thought I I always thought there was something wrong with my discipline button I knew people that were so disciplined and were so good at saying I would, I don't eat this, or I'm going to take a break from this, or this is what I do now. I am a vegan now. I am, you know, these are the things that I have decided. And so the action behind implementing that is easy. And I'm like, what's wrong with it? I have no discipline. I have no discipline. I will just, I will last a a week on this new diet if I'm lucky, and then I'll get frustrated and I will binge and I will go through this cycle over and over and over again. And so I figured out about myself more recently that I am better with moderation than I am with completely abstaining. And luckily I was able to kind of figure that out myself. It took me too long to figure that out. <laughs> it took me too long to figure that out. But um, I then recently saw um, someone else put this into words for me and it was a huge light bulb moment. So I don't know if you're familiar with Gretchen Rubin, um, but she has written a few books and um, is, is brilliant at um, I, I don't know I don't know if I don't know what her title is she's mm-hmm. she's awesome but she's she does a book called the four her most famous book is called the four tendencies um, but she uh, I came across this quiz on her website it says are you an abstainer or are you a moderator and very quickly I was like this is what I am okay now I understand so abstainers when they are faced with a choice, it is better for them to just take the decision off the table, right? So if they want to change their diet, if they want to do an elimination diet, it works well for them because they are, they say, 
okay, I'm no longer eating gluten. And it is not an option, right? It is off the table. And the energy that is put into deciding what to eat every day yep. is so much easier, right? Yep. Because they abstain. <laughs> and that's awesome. And that those are those are uh, those are the people that I was like, you've got this figured out. <laughs> What's wrong with my discipline button? Why can't I do that? And then we have the moderators, right? So the moderators are the ones who, when we feel like when we try to abstain, we feel caged and rebellious. And that is the quickest way for me to fail at any goal that I have is to tell myself that I that I cannot have it, that it's off the table, that um, it's it just, I never thought of myself as a rebel. I'm always, I'm a rule follower, but at the same time, it brought out this rebellious side of me that I was like, no, no, no. I'm an adult, I'm going to eat whatever I want, and you can't tell me what I can't, even if, even if the person telling me that I can't do something is me, <laughs> even if it's my own brain, I'm like, nope, 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 I do whatever I want. Um, and so having the option always in front of me is what allows me to make healthier choices for my body. And again, that goes back to sage, right? Wise through reflection and experience. I am wiser about what works for me because I know that if I give myself the option to have anything that I want, whenever I want it, I will listen to my body and I will make a decision in the moment based on what's going to make me feel my best. And now feel my best can also be a wide definition, right? Because right. I can feel my best is physical. Yes, I want to eat the foods that make me physically feel good, but sometimes feel my best is, is, is emotional and I want to eat the ice cream, right? Like I want to eat, I, I had a, I ate, a, um, I went to the drive through McDonald's yesterday and I had a chocolate milkshake and it was, there was no guilt there. There was no shame. Mm. I was able to have it because I know it's available to me and it's a choice that I made that I don't make very often. Right. right. I have a pint of ice cream in the freezer that will sit there for weeks untouched because I know it's available to me and I can have it whenever I want it. Now, learning that about myself, Oh, that was just huge. That was huge for me. So now when I coach others, I may not be the best coach for an abstainer. Right. right? I, and that's okay. <laughs> I always thought that I needed to, needed to help everybody, right? As coaches, we do that. We're like, I can help everybody. I can help all of you. But it doesn't work that way. And if you are an abstainer, then I might, my coaching program might not be the best for you because I'm the one who says, hey, if you want it, have it. It's there. You can have it if you want to. But think about how it'll make you feel. You know, make that decision on your own and no guilt, no shame. You know, there's no good or bad food. There is just food. And you just, and you eat what makes you feel your best. And so it it, it was really eye-opening. It allowed me to approach well, it allowed me to get rid of the diet culture altogether, thank goodness, forever. <laughs> and it allowed me to approach my healthy choices from a much kinder place. I'm much kinder to myself now mm. because I can have a milkshake from McDonald's and not feel terrible, like guilt and shame and and all of those negative feelings that come along with it. Um, now, there's nuance to that, right? Because I also, um, you know, I'm an AIT certified coach. So I work with clients implementing one of the most restrictive diets out there. And some people have to abstain. 
you know, so you may be listening and say, well, like, that's great for you, but I have this condition that means that I cannot have. And so I'm maybe, maybe you're a moderator, but you don't have a choice. You have to abstain from certain things. And that's okay because, again, that's your, that's self-awareness. That's you, that, that is you knowing, even though you're a moderator, that is you knowing that eating this thing is never going to be worth it. It's never going to be worth it, (laughs) right? Eating this food that makes you feel that way is never going to be worth it. But you have that choice. That choice is there in front of you to say, of course, I can eat it if I want, but I know exactly what's going to happen when I do eat it, and it's not ever worth it. And that's how I think you can still be a moderator and still have this mindset of abundance and not restriction, but be able to, to cater and customize your diet to what works best for you. And I loved it when you told me that because I was like, why hasn't anyone presented it like that to me? Exactly what you said. I was like, why am I just hearing about this now? After like 10 years of paying attention to metabolism, I just hear about this. Uh, And it (laughs) rang so true. So I'm definitely an abstainer. I had to tell my mom, my mom makes delicious zucchini bread cake chocolate, whatever, any flavor of that. And she would ship it down from New Hampshire. And I'd be like, mom, you can't send me desserts anymore because I, there is no moderation. If I have it and it's in sight, I will just eat the whole thing in two days Yeah, because my metabolism is so ridiculously high. I will, I will burn it off. So I will feel horrible, but there will be no long-term repercussions. As in, I'm not going to gain any real weight. Like I can get away with almost anything, but I feel the massive inflammatory response. So it's, there's no guilt or shame, like you said, but the, the reduction in, I'm just very sensitive to literally everything. So if she uses like canola oil or like actually refined sugar or something, I will feel it. And it'll be like a negative cascade for two days. Probably it'll feel like a hangover. Basically same mm-hmm. thing with coffee. I was at a, um, a fire circle last night and oddly enough, the topic was addictions and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is a good time. So I just axed coffee. Cause it's been a, a love hate, mostly hate relationship for the last three years where same thing. It'll just start a negative. It's useful to a point, but the point diminishes quickly and there's a negative cascade of metabolic effects and, Def, that one definitely had a little guilt and shame associated with it because I knew and I had tried so many times and it's the silliest addiction because it's just coffee. Like it's something that almost everyone does, but, um, the dramatic energy difference was, was very annoying midday. And it would literally turn into addiction where the first hour was like glorious, hyper-productive, hyper-creative, hyper, you know, like pain reduction tolerance and workouts. And then you always want to keep that hour chunk. Yeah. So later on in the day, you just keep yeah. literally chasing a high, um, just messing with my dopamine system. So that got axed last night. But another example of I have to abstain if it's anywhere near me, it's going to get destroyed. <laughs> like I, yeah. my environment has to be pristine. And then when I go out, whatever everything goes out the window but my immediate environment has to be pristine okay yeah. so i like that too that you recognize that your environment at home is is your controlled environment you feel yeah. like you can you can put things into place to make sure you are successful there and then and leaving the house is a different story for sure that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee is still the hard one with that because I never made it myself because I couldn't get the same effect. So I always had to go out. So now mm. there's a, 
I have to like rewire the pathways around the ritual of going to my favorite coffee shop in the morning, which also correlated with going for my morning run and getting sunshine. So there's a lot of of ritualistic like neurology right. I get to break apart in that one, which is why it's been so difficult. It's just yeah. anything that's such a imbued ritual like that is very, very difficult for me. Yeah. And and on the flip side of that, it can be, it can, I love, I love the term habit stacking because yep. it can work to your advantage, right? Yep. So if you are in looking to try to implement a new healthy habit, what are, what are the rituals that you already have in place and that you can, and then stack a, your new habit on top of right both ways right i love that yes and i didn't actually need the energy it was purely it was mostly the creative boost there was like a weird you know that state between when you um wake up and you actually get out of bed when you're probably hovering in like alpha brainwave state before you open your eyes and usually well some people have this before they go to bed at night i have it when it before i actually get out of bed where there's just like ideas floating around and it would be um like that and it would allow me access to that point so there was a creative inflow as well have you found anything else to to give to give you that no no other than specific brainwave like meditative states Mm -hmm. which i can put myself into so i've done joe dispenza's work i've done mind valley um and all those so they have to be concentrated and on purpose there's nothing as easy easy as (laughs) right and that's the annoying part Yeah. yeah I have noticed a little bit of a boost with lion's mane. I do, okay. I do like lion's mane in the morning, but it, um, I'm not, I'm not overly sensitive. I feel like I'm the yeah. opposite a little bit. I feel like I'm, I'm sometimes a little desensitized to things, and I, and I wish I had a more strong reaction to certain things because mm. when I use myself as the, as the experiment. I want to be able to tell people, yes, this thing made a huge difference for me. This thing made a huge difference for me. And it's always, for me, I'm always pretty even keeled. And so for me, it's it's less about the biohacking and less about the yeah. individual things. And it's much more about the overall choices on a daily basis that make the foundation that gives me that general you know, increase in energy, mm-hmm. decrease in energy. But there's never been one isolated thing that I've been able to pinpoint that's like this made a huge difference for me it's it's just all the pieces of the puzzle that have to be put together and for me at least yeah no that's that's beautiful do do you notice any difference in well you might not work with a ton of male clients I'm wondering if there is a generalized difference like 60 or 40 something between um male female uh, or just masculine, feminine, and abs- abstaining in moderation. I wonder if more men tend to be abstainers or mm. something like that. I can see that. I can see that. Although my husband's a moderator. Okay. So yeah. For sure. <laughs> um, but, I, but that's just a one, you know, that's just anecdotal. So that's I'm a good sure. question. I don't know if overall, statistically speaking, I could totally see that. Yeah. It, it might be, uh, it might, it might be might be a difference between men and women. No. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I will have to, uh, I'm going to read that, that book actually, that'd be a, an eye opener. Yeah. I don't know that she's written too much about this concept. It's just, uh, on her website, you know, this is just okay. an article throughout, um, oh, gotcha. but her, her book, her book deals with, um, uh, holding up responsibilities and who you, are you, um, do you tend to follow through with, because you are um, obliging to mm. like 
outer outer expectations or inner expectations or a combination of of the two. It's, I'm not I'm not as familiar with it as I should be, but it's a really interesting read. Gotcha. Um, could you briefly explain? So we've said autoimmune a couple times, and you said AIP. Could you go into what? You don't have to go super deep. What autoimmune is and what AIP does and who it's for specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, an autoimmune disease, there are a lot, obviously. There's quite a lot of autoimmune disease, everything from you know, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, and now it's expanding and we think there might be even more disease states and conditions that could be autoimmune in nature. But essentially what it means is that your body has kind of turned on itself. Your body is seeing um, its own cells as foreign invaders and creating an immune response. And so the immune system is kind of out of control, right? So we, it's not that, it's not a suppressed immune system. It's, it's an immune system that has kind of gone haywire and is not recognizing the body as self and it is attacking. Um, so depending on what cells are being attacked is, uh, how you identify which disease you have, right? Um, so the AIP diet, is a, it's not really just the diet, the, it's a, it stands for autoimmune protocol. And it is diet and lifestyle technique that is has been shown to really kind of help modulate the immune system response. Um, my mentor teacher, the one that I learned the most about auto, autoimmune disease and AIP is Dr. Sarah Valentine. Um, she really is kind of a pioneer with the AIP diet. Um, and what we do is we eliminate essentially all of the foods that might potentially be, be triggering uh, an inflammatory response, especially in, a, in, in an autoimmune disease patient um, or a client. Now, um, I have seen what's really fascinating is that I have seen this protocol work well for people without a diagnosed autoimmune yeah. disease too, because it really just brings systemic inflammation down. Um, and it's, it, we start, you know, you start with the big, the big offenders, right? So we know that sugar, gluten, dairy, grains, alcohol, these are all things that are most likely to be causing inflammation because they are inflammatory in nature for mm -hmm. most people, if not all people. Um, this takes it a step further to eliminate other things such as um, eggs, uh, nightshade vegetables, mm -hmm. nuts and seeds. These all have compounds in them, and don't ask me all the specific names of those compounds. But these, I got these a couple. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That um, that again have been known to trigger infl an inflammatory response and, and, and an immune response. Um, one of the biggest questions I get from every client, almost every client that goes through this that has never heard of AIP before was like, hang on, wait, I've got like nightshades, right? Mm. Eggplant and uh, tomatoes and bell peppers, these are, and black pepper, these spices that uh, are made with peppers, are, these, are, these are healthy, real foods. Like what is happening and why can't I eat a tomato? Like what's wrong with a tomato? Um, it's, it's all about how that, how that compound is reacting in your body. And so really what it comes down to is bio-individuality. And so with the AIP diet, you, you're wiping the slate clean, right? You are eliminating all of these foods that may or may not be triggering yeah. your symptoms, but you don't know until you eliminate them. And we recommend that you do it for at least 30 days, if not more. And 
you see really dramatic responses. It's really kind of amazing how, uh, when you do that, when you bring that systemic inflammation down, um, the body responds. And uh, and then you, you, you very methodically bring some of those foods back in to determine if they are, in fact, creating that inflammatory response. And if they are, now you know, right? Now you know. Now you're, you are empowered with the knowledge that that food creates that response. And so maybe you decide, then you can choose what to do with that information, right? Yes. That's what I love. You choose what you want to do with that information. But now you know. Again, you are becoming wiser through reflection and experience. You are learning to, to, to know your body. And so to, that's a big mindset shift, right? right? Mm. I can't ever have a tomato ever again to now I know how tomatoes make me feel. And if I'm willing to <laughs> accept those consequences, you know, it's up to you, right? Um, it's really amazing. I've seen, I've seen symptoms change and then... Um, People who, well, I'm trying to decide which way I want to go with this. One, on the one hand, people are like, I feel amazing now and I don't want to bring anything back. Right. <laughs> right? I don't want to change anything. But that's, we don't want to live in fear, right? We don't want to live in fear of food. We want to make sure that we are making knowledgeable choices based on your bio-individuality. But variety is important too. We've talked about how important it is to get a multitude of nutrients in your diet. So variety is incredibly important. So you do want to bring bring stuff back in, right? Um, and then there are some people who are like, hang on, I never had problems with tomatoes before. So why am I now, like what happened? What, what did you do to me? <laughs> why am I now yeah. experiencing symptoms from this food that I never had a problem with before? And I say, well, I would argue that you have always had an issue with tomatoes. You just didn't know it. And because I, I think of systemic inflammation as like a, a, a white noise machine, right? So the white noise machine is turned on really loud and you are not able to hear the messages that your body is sending you. So you're eating those tomatoes and you're thinking that there's no problem, but that white noise machine is on so loud that it's drowning everything else. And then you reduce that systemic inflammation you turn that white noise machine down. You can hear those messages clearly. You eat that tomato and all of a sudden you're getting a very loud and clear message from your body. And it's not pleasant for sure, but you're hearing it. And that's what's important. So now you're, now you're able again to make those decisions based on what you know about yourself now. Perfect. Yeah. And I always talk about finding your baseline and that's mm -hmm. sounds a lot like what you just said, which is we operate probably a thing. Most people are pushing 70 percent stress constantly and yeah a good amount of chronic underlying smoldering inflammation and we just can't tell because our bodies are communicating to us all the time microbiomes and constant communication but we just don't ever feel it unless it's screaming like if you get super bloated or have physical pain after eating something like that is a screaming message um is there an easy way sort of a in-between uh elimination or autoimmune protocol without someone knocking off everything is there a way so you mentioned the five top uh, inflammatory categories earlier um does knocking off one or two of those and playing with that reduce it enough where someone might be able to feel some of the messages from those those more individualistic foods absolutely i think it can i think it depends on the person yeah. um and the symptoms i think that for some I've worked with, let me say this, I've worked with people who 
are willing to do anything it, it, it takes. Yeah. Right. And their quality of life is at the point where they say, just help me feel better. And so for those people, <clears throat> excuse me, I say all in is going to make the biggest difference the fastest. And that's life-changing, right? That's life-changing for people to be able to, yes, it's hard. It's a lot of food to eliminate. It's a huge adjustment to make. But when they do, if they're at that point where it's, it's worth it, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, that's not my personal experience, yeah. right? In my own body. So I know that, like, I don't have a diagnosed autoimmune disease. I don't have symptoms that my body is screaming at me. Um, I feel generally pretty good. Yeah. However, there are always ways to improve. And or I've been in parts, of, you know, in, in phases of my life in which, like, something needs to change, right? <laughs> um. So if, if you're there, I think that mentally a massive elimination diet can cause more stress than it's worth. Mm. And I've seen that too. You know, I've seen, I've seen people who say, I, I cannot even think about eliminating all those foods because that is going to be, or, or they try, right? Or they try to eliminate all those foods and then spiral into this stress ball. I'm like, okay, let's let's back it off because that amount of stress is not eat the tomato. You know what I mean? Like it's right. not gonna, it's not worth, it's not worth the food, right? Because we, you know, we know how detrimental chronic stress is. Um, more, I, in my opinion, more so than what you're eating. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the so point being is that I think it depends on where you're coming from, what your goals are. I do work with a lot of people who are on kind of this side of things, because that's my personal experience where I say, you know, I, I, I don't take anything off the table completely, but I know that I feel best when I'm not eating gluten. Right. And I'm not eating a lot of sugar. So that absolutely moves the needle for people. You know, I say, if there is, if there, if, if you have all of these options in front of you for changes to make, it's better to pick one than none. Right. And just, just find, what find the low hanging fruit that feels manageable and work on that and take as long as you need to working on that. Right. If you're going to say, I, I want to, I don't know if I I just want to eliminate gluten, that's it. Right. And so you're just going to focus on eliminating gluten. And sometimes for some, that's even too much, right. That's too much of a change. No problem. I want to focus on increasing vegetables. I want to eat one more vegetable a day than I do now. That's going to make a difference. Every little tiny step is going to make a difference. And I think, you know, obviously, depending on how quickly you want to see the changes and feel the changes, the more changes, the more drastic your behavior change, the faster you're going to get results. But that's not always the best way to have to make long-term, right. lifelong, sustainable behavior change. For me, incremental changes are so much more powerful. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to ask a question. I've been on a this bent recently because um, it's fairly controversial, not really in the diet world. Um, and I just like hearing people's opinions on it. What do you think about carnivore? I think carnivore can be incredibly therapeutic. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, <laughs> I think that um, if your digestive system is compromised. Yeah. yeah I, I've worked with people who cannot digest a vegetable. Like, right. not do it. And it's not a lot of people, but it, their digestive system is so strained and so stressed and so compromised that 
they will take a bite. One bite of a vegetable will cause bloating and discomfort and distension yeah. and it's awful. And so I think I, I have absolutely recommended carnivore for a short period of time with a lot of gut healing nutrients and mm. time and stress management and prioritizing sleep and mm -hmm. water and bone broth and healing and, and that kind of thing so that you can then bring in the variety of food that you need in order to get your nutrients long term you know i don't i am not a fan of any strict diet long term but short term super powerful yeah for sure yeah what it what's short term for you oh i'd say i mean I, as long as it as long as it takes in order to, to make a difference um you know obviously i think that if it's too short term you're gonna that's not you gotta be able to you gotta get to a point where you're 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 able to bring in more food so yeah. but we can you know we can have an effect on a positive effect on the microbiome in a short period of time. Yeah. You know, your microbiome can change in what two to four weeks. And so it may only take 30, you know, 30 days of being carnivores to completely shift your digestion and be able to, to make a difference. Yeah. The anecdotes coming out of that community are pretty amazing. Kind of like yeah. when, whenever I was in class for um, primal, there were at least five or 10 people in there who were strict keto with MS, mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis, and just mm -hmm. other like nearly crippling autoimmune. They're like, if I deviate at all, mm -hmm. it comes back like immediately. So they had all the reason in the world to just be like, nope, just sitting in this because it's the only way that my quality of life is, is up there. I ask uh, just because it seems like unless someone has some serious ethical concerns, and I can see that because I used to be vegan, but it's the easiest autoimmune it's the easiest total elimination diet mm -hmm. and then you can add back in without depriving yourself right i have never met anyone who can tolerate a steak who wasn't extremely satiated and satisfied after eating it right so you're not really <laughs> deprived of anything and then you can see what vegetables or what foods yep. are actually feeling like what would the inflammation or what what would someone watch or listen for within their body to notice inflammation in general like what what things are super common gosh that's a great question um because it can be such a a huge variety of things um you know we go through in the reintroduction phase uh, of AIP is very methodical very systematic um there are stages that you go through mm -hmm. and there are certain things to look for and really the first thing that you want to look for are the symptoms that you suffer from before you change your diet, right? So that's what brought you to working with someone like us is are those symptoms that you're, that are most, that are, that are talking to you the most. Um, but there are obviously a lot more subtle symptoms that, that, and I, I always, I love this too, because there's a lot of times that you, that people come in with their unexpected changes, their unexpected mm -hmm. results that came in to see you because of this and this and this. And now this and this and this feels better. And I had no idea that this and this and this were even problems, right? And that's amazing because the body can heal in such incredible ways. And so, you know, I'm, I've, I've, from my personal experience, I always made a joke that I didn't realize how bloated I was until I yeah. wasn't. I wasn't bloated. And all of a sudden I was like, that's how I've been feeling this whole time for this many years. I've been bloated and I did not even know it because I was so used to it. So obviously digestive changes um, are a, a, a pretty clear message that your body is sending to you. Um, but other signs of inflammation could be brain fog, you know, um, 
that just kind of hard to recall words, hard to stay in the conversation, memory loss, brain fog's a big one. Skin, your skin is your biggest detox organ. So if you are experiencing inflammation, it's going to come out, it can come out to the skin. So you can have, you know, just puffiness in the face, puffiness in the face. Um, but, you know, psoriasis and eczema and rashes and itchiness, you know, if I eat gluten too much, my scalp gets really itchy. Um, that's a kind of a subtle one. Um, and then, uh, like joint pain. This one I think is so fascinating because tomatoes and nightshades are the ones that I see that's the biggest culprit for joint pain. And so, but it can be, it can be delayed. And this is what's so fascinating is that people will say, my joint pain has gone away. I don't feel so stiff when I wake up in the morning. I feel so much better. They eat a tomato and then 48 hours later, they have joint pain. And it takes a detective to kind of figure out it was the tomato that caused that problem. But that's the whole point of a very methodical reintroduction process is that you you reintroduce you know, one thing at a time. Food sensitivities and inflammation can take 72 hours to manifest as a symptom. So you have to pay close attention over that 72 hours. Isolate that variable as best mm-hmm. as possible and see what symptoms might be coming up. And it could be fatigue, right? It could be fatigue. And you might be like, am I fatigued because of inflammation from this food that I ate? Or am I fatigued because I had a hard workout yesterday? Or am I fatigued because I'm on this certain time of my cycle? You know, it it could be a million different things. And so it's, it's not easy, but it's worth the work if you're really looking to find and identify what's causing it. Yeah, and I imagine all those things stack. So it's every no one likes being in pain. And I don't think people would call mild inflammation pain. But if you start stacking five or 10 of them, then you start creeping up towards pain. And whenever you figure out a way to, um, whenever you find your baseline where you feel optimal and actually healthy and almost thriving or hopefully thriving, mm-hmm. yeah, you probably want to reduce as much of that discomfort all the time as possible. And the weird part about whenever I, started um, learning that certain vegetables had (laughs) negative effects on a lot of people and looking at more of like a tolerance window where things weren't good or bad. Everyone had a good amount of talk or had some level of tolerance to all foods Um, as a farmer. That was a tricky one, especially when I read when carnivore started becoming a thing. And I read uh, Paul Saladino's book, Carnivore Code, and then all of the different, um, meat-based ones started doing research and they're like, okay, why is this happening? Plants are good for us. And then they're like, eh, plants produce pesticides. We don't like them any more than the pests do. They're just not as toxic to us, which is the gist behind nightshades, right? Nightshades have been toxic or um, yeah, nightshades have been known to be poisonous. The job of farmers throughout millennia is to breed the things to be less and less and less and less toxic. So you start out mm-hmm. with a highly toxic food that's almost inedible, might give you some like digestive discomfort. And then over thousands of years, you try to breed it down to the point where there's almost no noticeable. And nightshades are usually still one of the highest toxic foods for people. There's just a lot of built-in pesticides. Yeah. That and the yeah. brassica family usually nails people with Hajimoto's. I had a, my former partner had bad Hajimoto's and she had to eliminate and still can't do any raw brassica, anything in the mustard mm-hmm. family, broccoli, cruciferous vegetables in general, just messed with her thyroid. Um, yeah. But that was an easy fix. Thankfully, it was just like, well, that food group is 
easy enough yeah. to yeah. get rid of kind of like nightshades, but it definitely takes the fun out of eating. I'll tell you what, I don't, I, I live in Texas and I think there's a lot of nightshades oh, that yeah. are fine to eliminate. But for me, I'm like, I cannot live without the chili powder and the salsa, you know, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. But uh, I'm with you. I mean, once you, once you, once you have that, it's, you know, the, the risk reward evaluation, right? Like, am, like, am I going to enjoy this enough to suffer the consequences? And that's it, an individual decision. As a yeah. coach, I can't, I can't make that decision for you. I can't tell you that, you know, is it going to be mentally, emotionally worse to not eat the thing? Mm-hmm. Or is it going to be physically worse to eat the thing? And mm. I just hope to empower you to make that decision for yourself on a daily basis, nice. right? Now, what's interesting too is that the carnivore. I want to say, um, you know, I also ha- I also work with a lot of people who don't digest meat very well, sure. and, and that's a that's an interesting. You know, they it sits heavy. It doesn't make them feel good, and you know that's that's um that's a digestive issue mm-hmm. to address as well, and that's something that is pretty common because we all most of us most of us have low stomach acid, right? Yeah. We know that stomach acid is required for protein synthesis and, and breakdown. And and so if, if you're not digesting meat well, it might be a sign that we need to do some support, some stomach acid support. And uh, um, so it's again, it's really... Oh, yeah. Hyper-individualistic. Hyper-individual, yes. And I, and I love being able to tell people, you know, don't listen to one thing that this, this worked really well and this is why and you might get the science behind it you might really dig into the science behind why this approach works but if it doesn't work for you it doesn't mean it's wrong it doesn't right. mean you're wrong it just it just it's okay you've got to find what works you got to trust your instinct i got one more nuanced nutrition question then uh we'll move off nutrition and and i got a couple other questions okay. do you think a lot of the this is again coming from like a more interest in food systems and farming background. Do you think a lot of the new inflammatory conditions or the fact that we have to worry about these things are driven by like default human conditions? Or do you think there um, could be a product of industrial contaminants, the food system being commodified at large scale over the last like 50 to 60 years and food just not being the same. Cause it's like the dairy thing. For instance, a lot of people have trouble digesting dairy and since a two and raw is a, a thing in a lot of places like Western North Carolina has got plenty of raw a two old breed cow milk and people who thought they were lactose intolerant, which is completely different than a type of casein, which is the milk protein in the cow can do raw a two. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. So that just blew apart an entire paradigm, right? You thought it was a milk sugar. And it's actually just that the type of casein in the cow that you were consuming was highly inflammatory to you. And it might still be one that it's still inflammatory, but they can just tolerate a two so much better. And especially it comes with the bacteria because it's raw. So all of those nuanced, annoying, weird things, whenever someone's just not feeling well and they're digging, like wheat is the same thing. Heirloom wheat from Europe has a completely different gluten structure, right? That has a higher concentration or a lower ratio of gliadin, which is an amino acid that makes up the gluten molecule and people can digest it better. It still triggers people. Like there's a guy on TikTok that is fantastic and does really really intense gluten testing. And he's like, literally everyone is is sensitive to gluten. There's no one that doesn't have some effect. It's just whether or not you feel it, like you said. So do you think that 
it's worthwhile to go into all of that nuance and find the the solution for you or or just kind of work with the broad categories at large and just still get rid of them? That's a great question. I'm trying to unpack that one. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I well, still struggle I guess, with this, yeah. <laughs> I guess my question to to anyone trying to unpack that would be what are what are you gonna do about it on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. What are what is that how does that translate to how the decisions that you're gonna make, right? And so I I I agree. I I could we could fall down yeah. the rabbit hole there for sure, especially with um the changes the, the changes in agriculture, the changes in our food, the massive changes in our soil and our environment in the last decades and generations. And then we could also go into uh, our our genetic changes right as from one generation to the next which obviously we know is not is, is minimal but then that genetic mismatch right that's a big that's a big part of it too right our dna has not changed enough in which our environment has changed drastically right. and so now we have that mismatch which could be big, a big part of it but i guess I, I guess it comes down to for me and for my clients what am I gonna what am I gonna do about that? Yeah. Like can I do something about it? And if not, am I going to stress up about it? Right. And so am I going to source only heirloom wheat to consume? Right. Only, right? I'm like, no, I'm not. Maybe that that's a noble pursuit and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do it, fantastic. Yeah. But it's not what I'm gonna do, right? And so am I going to am I gonna I guess I don't mean to be dismissive. I'm no, you're good. Dismissive. Yeah. Hope, it's it's action oriented at the end of the day, right? It's, is yeah. it going to change? Are you going to go through the daily lifestyle change? Uh, are you driving enough pleasure from the thing that you're going to go through the daily lifestyle change to make sure you're not getting the, the malnourished version of the food, so to speak? Yeah. Exactly. It, exactly. Yeah. This coming from someone who had a McDonald's milkshake. Yes. Sure. <laughs> right. So, my perspective is that, <laughs> is that is that McDonald's milkshake going to take off years at the end of my life? Probably not. Right. If I drink one every day, probably. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, this is just my kind of realization that if I fall into, if I allow myself to fall into that, mm-hmm. I will spiral. Yeah. And so I have to keep it broad and in order to keep my mental health. Protected. Yeah. I like 80, 20 rule. That's the, yeah. The primal framework is just like you can control it 80% of the time, but you're going to go bananas crazy if you try to control the 20% when you're out of your house. Yeah. So that's what I do. But even then, I still feel it. I'm just like, maybe it should be like 90 10 for me because I'm just really sensitive. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. You're sensitive. So 90 10 might be much more yeah. uh, pleasant for you in the long run, right? right. <laughs> On the basis. Yeah. Um, actually, I do have one more. What do you yeah. think about? glyphosates. I never get to ask this question. So Roundup, the active ingredient in Roundup, because there is so much. It's all correlative because this is hard to test for. Um, Zach Bush had a, had a good bit on this where it's just pervasive in the food supply at this point. The water supply is showing up in breast milk. It's everywhere. And it's probably up there with gluten as just wreaking havoc on the absorptive on your small intestine on chelating the minerals just on on things that they didn't i mean i'll give monsanto the benefit of the doubt even though i shouldn't but i don't know if they knew all of the consequences when they invented it yeah i'd like to think not do you see anything regarding that at all is that does that come up on the radar at all in in the circles you're in um i don't know 
not not really and that's not because it's not there it's because that's not something that I've dug into personally I, again that's something that's kind of on my list of things to to, to dive into but I'm a, I'm a <laughs> I'll admit I'm afraid to I'm afraid yeah to, well to there's a good amount of anxiety yeah yeah exactly I am afraid it might it might really affect the anxiety um but I also think that I'm, that might be something I could do more about right I could I could probably uh on a on a on my scale on my yeah. little home scale yeah. I could right. probably do something about how much I and my family consume and so that is something that I probably should dig into more of but there's I really only two that. things I think that actually are worth the mental thought for that because that was one of my first exposures to health was was uh, just the food system when I was 23 and glyphosate was probably one of the bigger drivers of why I started growing my own food or learning how at least there's only two real major things that I worry about or allow myself to to think about so I don't stress out and it's just organic food as much as I can or things that I know aren't that glyphosate's not being sprayed on like it's a big cash crop sprayer it's only used in big fields it's usually not like avocados or things like that. it's usually the big fillers so corn wheat soy pea all of those things yeah. if you can avoid avoid non-organic versions of those and then filter your water because definitely in the water yeah. supply nsf which is national standards foundation 53 certified filtration is and most filters will get well i shouldn't say that it's a pretty small molecule but if you can find and there's plenty of them nsf 53 certified filters um okay. 53 and 401 are the bad ones 401 is like all of the industrial contaminants the new ones so that's pfoas that's forever chemicals. That's um, 53 is heavy metals too. All of the tiny pesticides, herbicides, um, volatile organic contaminants, all the things that make headlines, tiny little ionic ones, that's NSF 53 and 401. So if you find a filter that's those, then you probably don't have to worry about it. And there's plenty of them out there. So that's kind What's of- What's your favorite for the average consumer? Uh, I don't know what average is, but I used to have a Berkey, but I- don't like them. It's up on my shelf right now. Um, they were just in a massive lawsuit and the taste changes. So I've moved from gravity fed filters to um, inline, still carbon block, but I use a company called MultiPure because yeah. they're, you. most people don't hear about them because they don't advertise, but they've been around 50 years. They invented oh, wow. solid carbon block tech and they're the only ones that are NSF 42, 53, and 401 certified. And that's it's it's expensive. It's kind of like having all of the certifications on food, non-GMO project verified, USDA organic, kosher, like just list, 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 whole 30, like everything. It's expensive to get all certifications, but um, it's also inline. So I I get tired of filling things. Like I would just get yeah, pissed. That makes so it it's just flipping a nozzle. I have an ionizer, so it feeds into the ionizer, but that's the base for yeah. water. Like you can get all fancy with the ionization, which I do because I have a water collective that I've co-founded, but I was going to say, this is what you do. <laughs> mineral clean water is the foundation. You need clean mineral water. And then it's kind of just optimization and gravy after that. So yeah, that's what I always tell people, especially for glyphosate, because a lot of people freak out about that. And it's worthwhile to know you're not getting in your water. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for listening to my rant. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Um, what? So we've been drilling on nutrition primarily, but you are, it's sage, well, holistic health. So what are the other big frameworks that you subscribe to and that you, um, you imbue within clients? What are the other yeah. big lifestyle movers? 
thanks for asking. I think sleep, movement, and stress management. Those are yeah. those are the big things that I try to, you know, I say I have been trained in nutrition and that is the foundation of my knowledge, but I am realizing more and more that that is not, that's one piece of the puzzle and maybe not even the biggest piece, <laughs> right? It may not even be the biggest piece of the puzzle when it comes to overall holistic health. I, uh, I, I my first love was yoga. I became a yoga teacher in 2009. Mm-hmm. Then my, my mom introduced me into to movement and yoga when I was in high school. Um, that's been foundational my entire life. She is a physical therapist, and so obviously movement and physical physicality is is um, is huge. I have, you know, through Primal, I've been learning a lot more about um, the best way to move the body, especially as I get older. You know, and I, as someone who obviously went through diet culture, hand in hand with diet culture goes chronic cardio. Right. Yes. So the, the elliptical machine in college was just my best friend. And that's all the girls did. We would spend an hour on the elliptical machine and that's what you're supposed to do. And then your spin classes and all of those types of things. And so now I'm learning the importance of building muscle, lifting heavy things, sprinting, high intensity. And I love I love the primal approach the approach to this, which is that, that high intensity really needs to be few and far between. Um, the lifting heavy things is super important, but I, what I really hone in on is the daily low level. Yeah. That to me is the big game changer when it comes to movement is how much can you move your body all day long? And that can be an easier barrier to entry, right? I mean, yes, it's a tough thing if you're sitting at a desk all day to kind of figure out what to do to move your body. But I think once you start incorporating that into habit stacking and mm-hmm. and making it part of your routine it becomes you know i have a standing desk and so i find yeah. myself kind of back yep. and forth and stepping side stepping and treadmill walking and getting outside and um and just so just that low level constant movement um sleep is something that i've prioritized a lot more lately mm. um i think it's becoming more popular it um, is the aura ring has really helped with that a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I had one for a couple years, and then I recently gave it up for again for kind of my mental health. I find mm-hmm. that tracking for me is triggering, and so I love it for short periods. I can track things for short periods, but um, over the long term, it increases my anxiety. So I used the aura ring to gather information, made some made some changes, and then got rid of it. So I could just relax into my new habits of sleep. So um, sleep for sure. And then um, stress management to me is the biggest one hmm. and also the biggest one, right? So I, I think it's I think it's the most important and I also think it's the most difficult to tackle on yeah. in a practical sense. Um, for the stress management piece, ties into nutrition and that's kind of where I got started with it is that, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of digestion, right? And digest your, if you're not digesting your food, you're not assimilating and using the nutrients in the food that you're eating. So like, what's the point of increasing nutrient density and eating all these wonderful foods if your digestion is not optimal. Now we know digestion starts in the brain and if you are in a sympathetic state, which means you're you're stressed in that fight or flight response while you're eating, then digestion is not going to be optimized, 
right? We know for sure a sympathetic state means that your body is geared up to survive the next 10 minutes and digestion is not important for immediate survival. Neither is reproduction, hormone balancing, right? These systems that are not, um, that are not crucial for your next, for your immediate survival, Hmm. it doesn't matter. They like the resources are funneled away from those systems into your, your muscles, your brain, so that you can, you know, fight or flee. So moving from that sympathetic state into the parasympathetic state, that rest and digest mode is so crucial for optimizing digestion and then getting proper nutrients from your food. That's kind of where I started with Mm. learning about it and then realizing how much it affects everything, Yeah, everything. And so we live in a primarily sympathetic dominant state because of our modern day stressors and switching over to parasympathetic as often as we possibly can. You mentioned the 80, 20 rule and this applies here too. If 80% of the time we can live in a parasympathetic state, that would be ideal. And then we got that 20% where we need to, to be on high alert. Great. But if we're living in sympathetic dominance, nothing works optimally, nothing. <laughs> okay. And we can only live in that state of dysregulated cortisol for so long before it really starts to wreak havoc on the body in many different ways. Um, so I will tell you, stress management is something in my practice that I'm still working on trying to figure out how mm. to, how to coach to, um, because I think there's nothing worse than someone telling you to calm down, yeah. someone <laughs> telling you to chill out, <laughs> Someone saying, why don't you just go meditate, right? <laughs> and and that's very, um, <laughs> that, put this, that puts me into a sympathetic state. Yeah, and you're like, I'm working. What do you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not like I could just turn a button, like just right. switch it over, right? So I'm working towards coaching that switch from, switch to parasympathetic in a way that feels client-led. Like, mm. you know, because I, I will tell you, meditation is not the answer for everybody. It's, no. easy, it's, it's an easy thing to say, right? Go med, you know, try starting a meditation practice, journaling, take a bath, walk, do yoga. Not, like some of those things, none of those things may resonate with someone who may be like, no, and it's not, none of those things sound relaxing to me. But for them, it's going out and having lunch with their friends. Mm. It is um, sitting and, you know, reading a book. It is playing with their kids. It's gardening, you know, so whatever it is, is perfect for you as long as you learn how to identify it and then implement it daily as as part of your day. And you have to you have to find more than one thing. You know, yeah. I think you can't just find the one thing that you're like, oh yeah, okay, I'm gonna do my I'm gonna add stress management to my to do list. Right. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, it becomes off. another another thing just to be anxious about if you didn't get it done. Yeah, yeah. So just like you know, people talk about exercise snacks and like the little five minute things that you can do. I think the same thing with stress management. You have to find the ways to implement it all day long. And and so again, I'm not sure uh what that looks like for each person, but mm. that's part of figuring it out for yourself. Much like inflammation and food, how would someone even know? what level of stress they're at. How do you get back to your baseline? Because I've I've had a number of brilliant people on and they all have a different technique to sort of find where parasympathetic starts for you. Do you know or what in your body, what is how do you know when you swapped over into sympathetic, so to speak? What's it feel like? 
I would love to hear their answers too. That's really, that's a, that would be a great conversation. Um, yeah, because sometimes, I mean, just like when we talked about inflammation yeah. with nutrition, if you don't have, if you've never experienced that baseline, how do you know? How do you know what baseline is if you've really truly never been there? Um, I don't know. That's a really great question. I'm trying to think of in myself, you know, um, because I, 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 I feel like I am, I am someone who can turn things off, right? If I, at the end of the day, no matter how stressful my workday was, I am able to turn it off and walk away from it. And I think it's because for me, my, it's my family, right? My family life is so strong. I've got an incredible marriage with my best mm. friend. I have a daughter who brings me joy. And so being able to turn work off and open that door and go and be with my family, that's, that's my mm-hmm. switch over to parasympathetic. Even if, even if that also requires, you know, um, dealing with a six-year-old and cooking dinner and, you know, all of these things that still is stopping to recognize. And I've done this a few times recently, like stopped and recognize how lucky I am to have what I have and really soak up the moment that I have with my family in right now. And it's a kind of overwhelming. It's kind of an overwhelming mm. emotional feeling where you're like, oh, this is good. Life is good right now. And to me, that's where I can really feel myself. My shoulders drop right? Yep. Shoulders drop. I stop holding the tightness in my muscles. My jaw relaxes and I'm able to just enjoy what's happening at the moment as opposed to thinking about the future. Mm. And I, so I, that's a, it's, I don't have an answer for everybody. <laughs> well, I think that was an answer. That was <laughs> if you can carry the feelings whenever you have them throughout the day of abundance and gratitude with you in any in any dosage, that's a pretty good antidote that's for, beautiful. yeah, I like that. Um, you did yeah. have a five finger, oh, what did I see? A five finger breath approach oh. on your Instagram. Well, can you walk us through that briefly? My yoga teacher taught me this and I don't think she, I don't think she created it. I think it's, I've seen mm-hmm. it other places too, but you know, you hold your hand up, you've got your, your, your finger here and you start at the base of your wrist, you inhale up your thumb. Exhale down your thumb. Inhale up your pointer finger. And exhale. And then you just keep tracing. So inhale up and exhale down. And then you can do that as many times as you need to to kind of switch into that parasympathetic state. Yeah, yeah it's right there. It's just it's no, it's no tools needed. It's yeah, it's it's easy. You know, there's several different types of breathing exercises yeah. that um that can really help. And I think just another easy one is extending your exhale. You yes. know, you don't have to count, you don't have to think about it, but as soon as you feel anxious, if you can feel yourself take a breath and then make sure your exhale is longer than your inhale, that will instantly start to kind of calm things down. I think breath work is picking up quite a bit of steam as mm. Yeah, I'll make this lofty statement. As consciousness rises in society in general, I think breath work is becoming more and more popular because it's so quick and it gives people just a pulse of their entire nervous system. I think nervous system awareness in general is becoming more of a trending topic. Um, maybe, or maybe I'm in a bubble because I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and this is a little bubble of consciousness, but I don't think so because. 
there's no, I... a lot of people mentioning it that aren't like breathwork coaches or nervous system specialists or hormone specialists yeah. or people just being like, I went to this, like I was at a, I'll be at a breathwork on Wednesday. The most transformative things to your nervous system within like 30 seconds. It's yeah. so amazing. And we're never yeah. taught that. <laughs> I agree. I think it is becoming more and more popular because that uh, I, back when I was at the NTA, yeah. the the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system uh, information was new to a lot of people. I remember teaching about it as, after graduating, and now I hear I hear people yeah. talking about sympathetic and parasympathetic all over. Like, okay, this is becoming these are becoming common words, common terms that people yes. know about. If I hear someone throwing out vagus nerve in the yeah. grocery store, I'm like, yeah. oh, wow, it made it. Okay, cool. Yeah. We're just talking about these things. That's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear because, yeah, people are just getting more tools. And I think yeah. health coaches' primary thing is loading up people, load building toolkits, giving people as many yeah. tools that they can pull out whenever yeah. they need them. That's, that's usually the goal. Okay. Uh, what have you found um, sleep-wise? What made in, did you ever have problems sleeping? Do you have um, clients who have problems sleeping? What makes the biggest changes for, for sleep quality? Oh my gosh. Have? Yeah. Lots, lots of things. This is a whole huge time. In fact, I have right. a coworker who specializes in sleep. She is the sleep queen. Um, you know, if you in general, well, where do I start with that? Um, I think a very underrated thing is sleep hygiene. Yeah. I think sleep hygiene is something that we dismiss pretty yeah. easily and can be so powerful. So those are the those are the things that you have in place that lead up to sleep that set you up for a good night's rest. And so these are you know the environment, right? The the, the temperature of your bedroom, um, the the comfort of your bed, the ritual of that you have in place before. I think the ritual is really important because yeah. you know our, that that triggers your brain to say, okay, it's we're, we're, we're winding down now as mm -hmm. sleep is coming. Um, the, uh, the blue lights, right? Like yeah. you got your, your, your amber glasses. I do. There's a big ring light. light in front of me. So I just try to yeah. not kill myself with that. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it and reflect it in your glasses. Every yeah. yep. Um, a big thing that I've started, uh, kind of, um, really honing in on is overhead lights after sundown. Right. And then only dim lighting. Um, and even things like the comfort of your pajamas, right? If it yeah. makes you happy, right? I have, I have a pair of sweatpants. I swear that you ask me what 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 it takes. How do I know if I'm in the parasympathetic state? As soon as I put those sweatpants on and I switched over to that parasympathetic state, I can feel it happen. I put those sweatpants on. My my brain is like, yes, this is comfort. <laughs> I am relaxed. It is time to chill out. Like that. I mean, get yourself a pair of parasympathetic sweatpants. Yeah. Needs those. And That's it's wonderful. <laughs> um, but do it really does kind of like again trigger that cascade yeah. where your brain is like, okay, now melatonin is increasing. Um, speaking of, you know, melatonin is very mm -hmm. sensitive to light. And so that's a huge one. I think that people don't realize that, you know, darkness in your bedroom is so important, even on your skin. I found mm -hmm. this out, you know, when you, when you have light exposure on your skin, it can decrease melatonin production. So even if you're wearing the night mask, if your leg <laughs> is exposed to light, it will decrease melatonin production. So that's, so that sleep hygiene, sleep environment is so important. I, I also go back to nutrition, right? If mm -hmm. you are, 
if you're um, unable to fall asleep, we need to work on cortisol and stress and increasing, you know, increasing cortisol in the morning. That's ideally when it's highest. And yeah. so getting outside and having sun exposure first thing in the morning with, within an hour of waking will naturally help your cortisol rise. And then you want that cortisol to, to naturally drop throughout the day so that your melatonin is highest in the evening. But there's a lot of things that can disrupt cortisol and keep it high, um, including staying in that parasymp- I mean, in that yeah. sympathetic state too much. Um, so that can make you wired when you're trying to fall asleep, right? That high cortisol. But then, if, but if you fall asleep easily and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you have trouble falling back to sleep, that could be a blood sugar dysregulation, right? So that could be that your blood sugar is spiking or that your liver is is working too hard in the middle of the night. And so we need to work, then we need to back it up and work more on switching over to a fat burning mode, maybe yeah. decreasing those high blood sugar spikes. And that can come back to like what you're eating throughout the day. So um, there's a lot of nuance to yeah. sleep, I think. <laughs> and a lot of pieces of that puzzle. And And again, I think that What's powerful is that you don't have to implement all the things. Like, what are what are what what are the little things that you can start to change and see how it affects your sleep and see what happens. And hmm. I mean, little I, the aura ring for me helped me to if I decided to have like a, a a drink, if I decided to have a glass of wine or a cocktail, I would move it at least an hour earlier. I yeah. would have it for dinner, and and then I would make sure I had a couple of hours with no alcohol before I went to sleep and that made a big difference. And what would you say for amount of time on average between uh, food consumption and sleep? Average, I would say about two hours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You really, um, you really want to give your body a chance to digest before going into sleep mode. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little larger than that just because I eat a very heavy dinner, but I try to have my last meal like five. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> because it's usually something extremely heavy and long to digest, like a steak and something. And I need yeah. hours and hours for that to emulsify. So if I And then eat- you feel best going to sleep. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. I think for, you know, again, it's bio-individual, right? I think for mm-hmm. a lot of people with kids who have events and right. things, it can be very challenging to eat early enough. Sure. But then all of these little things that you can kind of put into place to, <laughs> to help to help extend that time and to help set up the good bedtime routine and help you. Perfect. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. Where can people find you? Um, I am at Fadewell Holistic Health uh, on Instagram and uh, online. So uh, that's my website. Uh, I also am just sagewellholistichealth at gmail.com. So if you want to reach out directly, you can email me directly. Um, and then I'm very active on Instagram specifically. So I see that you have uh, some place to engage gorgeous thumbnails on here. Yeah. It looks yeah. like you have a 21 day challenge on the front page of your Instagram. Are you actively running that? Or is that a, a timed thing? Is that a, uh, in seasons almost? Yeah. Great question. I'm starting a new one, August 7th. So this is a, a mindful eating challenge. This is what I have everyone complete before working with me more in depth. Um, and it's 21 days of, again, getting getting to know yourself a little bit better, um, a less restrictive and strict and dogmatic eating challenge. You know, I think we're used to those. I think we're very used to strict rules, start date, end date. And this is what you're going to expect in these yep. 21 to 30 days, right? 
I'm trying to turn that on its head and I'm trying to I'm trying to encourage people to to yes, take a take a 21 day time period to explore. You know, here are the list of foods that could potentially be inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Do you want to eliminate some of these for 21 days? Try it out. It's a big self-experiment. Find out if these foods are causing issues. Are there some nutrient-dense foods that you can bring in for 21 days and see how that makes you feel? Um, so we're starting that August 7th. I uh, For this round, I'm going to have a couple of group, of group coaching calls, um, but I am very seriously considering kind of revamping this a little bit uh, to have open enrollment. So anybody can enroll at any time they want, and then I will have scheduled uh, coaching calls that they can join no matter where they are. In yeah. those days. So uh, imagine that September will start the open enrollment period. Perfect. Yeah. And those can be highly transformational, just enough to give you like a taste of what the baseline feels like. And you're like, oh, okay, what do I need to change to make this a long-term sustainable change? Because I yeah. want to feel more like this all the time. Just gives you a little more clear energy. Maybe the brain fog disappears a little bit. Maybe your hormones are a little more balanced. Like e- e- any one of those large system-wide variables starts to normalize. Like huge things, things start changing. That's beautiful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that. The taste, the taste of your baseline. That yeah. <laughs> that's, gonna, that's my new tagline. I love that. Wonderful. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, Jennifer. Thank you, Alex. It was a great being here.